0: Okay, you guys, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's good to see everyone. So this is kind of our, this is our last Sunday of Lent. So did anybody, uh, did anybody make it all the way through Lent, having given something up and not, you didn't cheat? Raise your hand high if you did this. That's incredible. Like, these are the disciplined people. That, that's, uh, I did not do that. That's not how it went for me. But today is our, kind of our, our move, our turn into our Holy Week celebration, a week where we call it Palm Sunday, where we tell the story of the triumphal entry of Christ, At the time of Christ, Rome had only been an empire for about 30 years. For 500 years, Rome had been a republic, kind of an early form of democracy. And in those early years when they were still kind of expanding from a city to a state, more of a, a regional power, Rome was actually quite fragile. Everywhere that they tried to expand, the locals would resist them, and eventually they learned that if they would extend Roman citizenship, which had a pretty good upside um, to people who they were kind of conquering, that they, would, they were more apt to join peacefully. Things would go a lot, lot better. And so while Greece, kind of the other fledgling democracy of the day, was plagued by en- endless squabbles, Rome became quite stable and began to grow eventually expanding, just you can see the part in the red there, uh, across the entire Mediterranean world, including this little region to the east of the Mediterranean called Judea, as in the land where all the Jews live. That's what Judea means. And and its capital city of Jerusalem, where Jewish people have worshipped for centuries. And and really, the biggest threat to Rome at this time was not some foreign power, because they had this powerful army. It was actually their own generals, Kind of the danger was that some general would win a war and then just march his armies into Rome and take control of the Senate and set, set himself up as a dictator. And so Roman law actually stated that any general who had been successful in, in, in battle had to disband his army before returning home. And there was this river kind of that separated sort of the north and the south there. And generals couldn't cross that river with an intact army. In exchange for disbanding their army, the Senate would then honor the general with what was called a Roman triumph. And the triumph was a big deal because it would forever change the status of a general. And at the center of the Roman triumph was this massive parade, a triumphal entry into the capital to the cheers of its citizens. And and the one being honored would be dressed in a purple toga. This is from the um, miniseries Rome. Anybody watch that? Interesting stuff. Um, They have this laurel crown on their head, symbolic of victory in the Olympic Games. Um, Their face would be painted red, identifying them with the god Jupiter. That was kind of their Zeus, whose whose face was red. He would ride behind a four-horse chariot. It was kind of the Corvette of the day, like the fastest hot rod they had going and when he approached the city, all the religious and political and military leaders, they would ride outside of town to meet him and then process with him into the city. They all come in together. And the people were given massive amounts of food and wine and choirs would be organized um, to sing and chant along the way. Trumpets would be... Um, played. People would throw uh, flowers and wreaths in front of the the chariot. Sometimes they'd commission a special coin with his face on it. Um, Or or sometimes they would build a monument like this one that's still there, the Arch of Titus, near the Colosseum in Rome. The reason this matters is it was built to celebrate the victory of Titus, um, who sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the, the Jewish temple. And it's, it's still there, located on the Summa Sacra Via, the summit of the sacred way. So they would come into town in their triumphal entry. They would process um, through the streets of Rome um, and then, then down between the Colosseum and the Roman Forum. And, and really, after this, after this triumph, Titus's, anyone who got a triumph had to go under Titus's arch. See, this is kind of a big, big deal when this happened. And after the entry, they would, they would parade through the forum. They'd end up at the Temple of Jupiter. There would be speeches, proclamations of honor, and they would make a sacrifice to the god Jupiter. And for that day, the honoree was considered almost like a god. Afterward, they would, of course, be given land and riches um, maybe awarded a seat in the Senate. They were basically set up for life with public honor and riches, and that way they wouldn't be so tempted to like, over- try and overthrow this Senate with their army. And this practice worked for a long, long time until Roman expansion began to transform the Roman economy. Cheap slave labor, um, cheap grain from Egypt flooded into Rome, and it started to drive the, the um, farmers and merchants into poverty. Um, basically, the, the whole working class, in a sense, began to lose their security, their livelihood. And the rich started buying up all the land for pennies on the dollar and um, wealth concentrated in the hands of this small upper class. And so in response, kind of all the... The unemployed farmers and workers began to unite. They banded together and started causing trouble, and Rome was once again divided. Until this one general that you've probably heard of, named Gaius Julius Caesar, gained the allegiance of these lower classes by offering them land in exchange for fighting in his army. And the Senate was stuck. Like, they, they refused to give people food when they needed it. They really, any form of public assistance they, they resisted, including giving public land to to the farmers so they could keep making a living. Julius Caesar took the other tack. He just he would try to give them everything. He gave all of his army lands. He promised them land after they won. It inspired great allegiance from his generals and, and his armies and the people at large. And so in forty nine BC, after victories up north in like what's now Great Britain, Um, Gaul and Brittany, this is about 50 years before Christ, Um, Julius Caesar crossed that river, crossed the Rubicon, that's where that saying comes from he crossed the Rubicon without disbanding his army setting off this civil war that eventually toppled the republic. When Caesar was given his Roman triumph he brought his army with him, it's the first time Nobody had done that before, although everyone did that after. And this is sort of the nature of empire, the difference really between empire and republic or democracy. The empire always rolls with an army and a display of might and power. And so Julius Caesar became dictator of Rome for for a short time until he was assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. You know the story, right? Right. And then in the chaos that followed, 500 years of democracy was just frittered away. Um, Eventually, Caesar's adopted grandson became the first official Roman emperor. And he took the name Caesar Augustus, the one that we read about in Luke chapter 2 in the birth story. In those days, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to their towns to be registered. So this is why Christ was born in in, in Bethlehem. Then, of course, his family had to flee to Egypt because Herod went on a a, a killing spree. And then when they came back, they were trying to stay away from Archelaus, who was a real nutter. And so they moved way up north to Galilee, this Hellenized region that um, existed kind of off this major highway, like a trade route called the Via Maris. The way by the sea. Much of this, it was so popular, much of this still exists to this day. You can find the road. Um it ran all the way from Egypt, past Emmaus, up to Caesarea Philippi, passing just a few miles from Nazareth, where Christ grew up, and running directly through Capernaum, where he lived as an adult during his ministry. And so Jesus grew up under the thumb of the Roman Empire. We're told he was a carpenter. He worked as a tecton. That's, that's the, the Greek word. It just means builder, construction worker. So when he was a boy, he worked on building projects with his father. So Rome had decided Galilee needed a, a, a good Roman city. And so they, they dumped a ton of money into building of this little city called Sepphoris, the capital of Galilee. This was known as the city on the hill, which should ring a bell. It's four miles from Nazareth. This picture is um, from the other side, but you, you kind of get the picture. Jesus would have walked over here probably many, many mornings to work with Joseph, then walked four miles home. He grew up seeing the light of, of Sepphoris out on the horizon at night. Um, tra- tradition is that Mary's family actually lived in Sepphoris. When you look at these pictures, who knows that if Jesus maybe laid some of these stones and worked on... Some of these homes helped dig the aqueducts for their water. And chances are, at the very least, he knew some of the stone workers who laid these, these tiles and stuff like that. He also watched the Roman financiers refuse to pay their workers. He watched the farmers nearby lose their lands. He watched Roman soldiers abuse his friends and families, maybe even himself. We know that when, he went, when Christ was 12 years old, there was an uprising against the Romans in Galilee. A bunch of carpenters and tradesmen were protesting unfair treatment and economic injustice. And the Roman army swooped in, put it down, and they crucified 2,000 Jewish men along the highway. So Jesus had seen firsthand what happened if you oppose Rome. And dealing with Rome out here in Galilee it was just a daily bother. I mean, you're on your way to work. Um, you're, you're trying to get there. You own your own business, and it, you got to work all day. You pass a Roman soldier coming the other way. He could say, hey, dog, carry my pack. And you had to stop, pick up his 80-pound pack, and carry it. He could force you to carry for a mile. Then you'd drop it and walk back a whole another mile and then go on your way. It was a humiliation. It was a regular occurrence. Or you're farming your Father's land, like the land that was passed to you, that was your father's, father's, father's land, right? And then Herod just keeps raising taxes till your margins are razor thin, and there's a drought, you fall behind, they take your land, and some fat cat in Jerusalem buys it and sets up a steward to, to kind of watch over you. That's why Jesus was telling parables always about stewards. They just humiliate you constantly in front of your children, your community. They were constantly dealing with Rome, and the Roman way was might makes right. If you're powerful enough, you can do whatever you want to do. And to resist, they knew meant crucifixion. They had seen this happen. It's not that different from how we still do things in our day. Only for us, it's like, you bomb us, we'll bomb you. It's the proportional response, Right? You raise an army, we'll raise just a slightly bigger one. You you build a weapon, we'll build a a better weapon. And so Jesus, he faced the same things we faced in in his world. And he had certainly thought about where all this was headed, especially because his own people, all they could think about was revenge. Raising some kind of army or having some messianic leader, like, inspire them um, to put down Rome. And he kind of saw how ridiculous this prospect was. And all he seemed to think about was, how is it going to actually end all the violence, all the enmity? How could we bring about a, a truly new kind of kingdom to, uh, to organize the world around shalom, around peace and flourishing? How will people come together despite their differences and, and live in a, a peaceable Kingdom. We know also Jesus knew the prophets; he knew their writings because he quoted them all the time. He, is, he and his cousin John the Baptist had been down close to Jerusalem, um, out in the wilderness, calling people out of the centers of power to, to repent, right? To, to go in a different direction. He was teaching them, you know, peace won't come by power and might, but by a new spirit. He said the only way things will get better is if we learn how to love our neighbor. Actually, he said it's impossible to love God and hate your neighbor. That's what he taught. And then he defined love, um, to love one's neighbor, was to actively seek their flourishing. And he's specifically taught them how to arrest the violence. So if somebody slaps you, don't don't slap them back. Turn the other cheek so you you resist, but you resist nonviolently. They make you carry a pack one mile, carry it an extra mile just to show that you're a free person. Don't just love your neighbor and hate your enemy, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. This is how he talked. And then he would tell these stories and parables to support it, like the one about a man who got attacked attacked by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road, and these two good Jewish men, like a proper rabbi and a priest, Walked by, act like they didn't even see him. And then the hated Samaritan, right? A foreigner. In our day, we would think of something like the Muslim neighbor, the, the, the liberal or the Trump fan, right? Whichever side you hate, that's what you picture, right? Comes by and is the hero of the story. Told a story about a woman who is caught in adultery in an affair with a man who is off limits, and the leaders had obviously set up the whole thing and were ready to kill her, and this woman's lying on the ground. In our day, this would be somebody who's caught in, you know, outed as LGBTQ or something like that. And Jesus stood right in front of her, between her and the crowd, and he said, only the person who does not have their own issues can lift up a stone and begin. He told a story about a woman with a flow of blood which made her unclean, untouchable, distance her from her family, or community, even from the synagogue and the temple. And she crossed a line, right? She does not go through proper channels. She breaks a law and reaches out and touches Christ to get a little help, to maybe find healing. In our day, this would be the illegal immigrant who crosses a line, who breaks the law, trying to chase a life, you know? And Jesus just, He just welcomes her into the community. He actually calls her breaking of the law an act of faith. This is how he talked. He just told these stories and engaged in these actions that just torched the old paradigm. In any way that you could slice up the world into insiders and outsiders or good guys or bad guys, he would go against it. Like if you said God is on our side, these are the guys, those are the bad guys, he would go stand with the bad guys. It didn't matter who it was. Unclean, lepers, the untouchables, tax collectors, Roman collaborators, centurions even, immigrants, foreigners, aliens, prostitutes, prodigal sons, notorious sinners, women, children, Anybody you counted out for any reason, Jesus would pull them in close. And when people protested, then he'd just he'd tell them stories, like the one about the man who had a wedding and invited all of his you know, proper friends and neighbors who were too busy to come, so he invited homeless people and immigrants, and they got to party. He gave water to a Samaritan woman at a well. He healed a Roman soldier's daughter, extended grace to a Syrophoenician woman. He touched a leper, a contagious person, right? A threat to their community. And all along, he just kept saying, you're like, do you really think we're the good guys, the ones who God really loves? And are you so sure of this, that you want to go to war against everyone else? Is that how you think this all ends? Building bigger barns so you can store all of your wealth while your neighbor goes hungry. Arguing about who's the greatest, like his disciples had done. Arguing about who really belongs. Is that, is that what you want to do? Stoning sinners? Is that it? Shunning the unclean? You think that's how the kingdom comes? And he reminded them, you know, for generations... His people had prayed to God for Mashiach, an anointed one, a Messiah, a warrior king like David who would come lead an army and kick out the Romans and restore right worship in the temple and establish peace. And all through their long exile, they had prayed for this, prayed for vengeance. They prayed for blood. And then from out of nowhere, from really from the margins of their culture, a counter-testimony emerged. And and these prophets began to speak. And what they said is, you guys, the problem is not out there. It's in here. It's with us as a community and all of us as people. It's in our hearts, in our hatred of our enemies, in our love of violence and our trust in violence. It's in the way we disregard the poor. It's in our idolatry, our worship of You know, unultimate things and our selfishness. So they killed those guys really fast. Like, that's how they did that. They killed the prophets. But not before they wrote stuff like this that was quoted in our text for today from the prophet Zechariah Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king is triumphant, he says. But he rolls like a peasant on a donkey. This was nonsense. This is nonsense to them. It was foolishness. That's not theology. That's crazy talk. He will cut off the chariot. From Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. That's what Zechariah said. Chariots, of course, in their day were they—they were kind of the warplanes. War horses were the tanks. Battle bows were artillery. This, this one who comes will take armies out, out of the equation. And his dominion will not be just for one group against the other groups. It will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And how? Like, how will, the, how will this kingdom come? Zechariah says this. It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. By my spirit, a new way of being, a new spirit to our lives. So fascinating to me that when God inspired the prophet Zechariah to imagine a new kind of kingdom, a new kind of king, the detail He used was that he wouldn't come riding on horse and chariot with his face painted red like Jupiter. His triumphal entry would be humble. It would be gentle. He would come riding on a donkey, commanding not an army riding behind him, but commanding peace to the nations. I'm going to read the text again. We read earlier from from Matthew. This is the version from Mark. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing? Just, just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road and others spread the branches they had cut in the fields. And then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Hopefully when you came in, you, had, you were given a little palm branch. If you will, just grab that branch. Hold it in your hands for a second. So when Jesus rode into town, the crowds are going crazy. And what they're shouting is Hosanna, which in those days wasn't a line in a worship song. No, no worship songs had been, yet been written with Hosanna in, in the title. It wasn't even a religious word. It was a mashup of two Hebrew words. Hosha, which means save us or help us, and na, which means now or, or please. It gives it urgency. So, so they were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, shaking these branches, Hosanna, which, which essentially would be like shouting, save us now, save us now, save us now. That's what they're yelling. And they're throwing their cloaks down in, in, on the ground before him, what they did for kings, you know, and, and, and generals when they rode by. It's this royal conquering symbol. And they were waving palm, palm branches. The reason this is important is um, Israel had, in, in recent memory, about 200 years before, like it's much like our revolution, they had had a successful revolt. Um, Judas the Maccabean had won some independence. And when he rode into Jerusalem um, in his own simulated Roman triumph, all the people waved palm branches. It was the symbol of the Maccabean revolution. These these are a symbol, what you're holding, when they were waved, they were a symbol of a violent revolution against Rome. And so, so the people, they see this would-be Messiah coming into Jerusalem. They're all shouting, "Hosanna! save us now, save us now. They're throwing cloaks on the ground like a Roman, Roman triumph. They're waving palm branches, the symbol of their revolution. This is a messianic demonstration. This is just a, a political protest. They want Christ to raise an army and retake Jerusalem and kick out the Romans. And the Gospel of Luke tells us how Jesus responds. It's a complete surprise. It says, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And so then he kind of does his own little prophecy. He says, so indeed the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will crush you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So Jesus comes into town with everybody screaming for revolution. And he's riding, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And he's weeping over the city. Saying, in essence, like the prophets tried to warn you. Like Zechariah told you, it's not by might and not by power, but by my spirit that this kingdom will come. But you shut your eyes and you closed your ears and you, you killed the prophets and you pray for blood and vengeance. And he says, so you're going to lose everything. And they did. What, what he described is exactly what happened in 70 A.D. Remember Titus and the Arch of Titus? This is what happened. They destroyed Jerusalem just a few decades later. You look at this, this picture of Christ, you know, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Most scholars agree that... Uh, he was mimicking, intentionally, um, staging kind of a parody of the Roman triumph, like his own triumphal entry into the capital, only he doesn't bring an army, right? Instead of horse and chariot, he rides on a donkey, fulfilling what the prophet Zechariah had, had predicted. And he rode in, um, interestingly, from, from the east, from out of the desert. Um, which means he had to come over the Mount of Olives. He had been over that on that side because, he, remember, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And Zechariah 14 also said, when the Messiah comes on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. So this is deep, this is deep in their story. And Jesus went straight to the temple, just like any triumph, just like Caesar or Herod or Pilate would do and did do in that same year. But it's funny. He just, like, looks around and then leaves. He does not doing anything. you notice that in the story? He just, like, looks around, and it's like, and because nothing was happening, he just left. It's almost like it's, it's part of the parody of Roman power. He's just going, like, there's really nothing to see here. And the crowds cheered him, of course, that day because they thought he was going to lead a revolution. By the end of the week, same crowds, same people would be yelling again, but this time crucify him. Um, eventually they, they try to do a prisoner swap, you remember that part of the story? For this um, guy Barabbas. Remember this? Uh, the, Barabbas had been a, a violent revolutionary. He had led a failed insurrection that had killed some Romans and some Jewish collaborators. and um, He was set to be Crucified. His actual name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus Bar-Abbas. Bar means son. Abbas means father. Jesus, the true son of the father. That's Barabbas. They don't want the peace donkey guy. They want the violent revolution guy. They engineer a swap. But Jesus rides into town the way he rides into town, and so they traded him for Barabbas, and I think this kind of, this whole story, and and when you set the scene that way, it really hits hard to us, even today, and kind of leaves us with the same question, how does all, the way the world is so messed up and violent, how is it all going to end? You know, longing for a solution to the problems of the world and our, especially like our political fights, our social and economic injustice, wars, tribalism, nationalism, racism, patriarchy, violence, inequality. Like, are we really that different than they were back then? And then you see this picture, Jesus riding in on a donkey. And I think that it asks us to just stop for a moment and step back and just think very carefully about where we are lining up, whose side we're on, to whom we pledge our allegiance, our loyalty. We pledge it to a flag, to a country, a political party, where do we place our trust ultimately? Is it guns and bombs and armies and tanks? When we pray about our enemies, do we pray do we pray for a soft, tender heart toward them, or do we pray for vengeance, you know? Because if we if that's what we do, then then he weeps for us. He weeps for us. I mean, this is such a gutsy move, man. Because he's moving against the powers of injustice. Like he's entering, he's not just avoiding it. He he didn't become like a monk off in the wilderness. He comes to the center of power. He's confronting the powers. It's so brave. Confronting even his own people, which is always the hardest thing to do. But he's showing them what it really means to be part of the kingdom of God. Which is a kingdom of love. And and then he's inviting everyone to take up citizenship in this new kingdom. And his own people, who really should know—I mean, they knew the prophets—they don't get it. They did not recognize the time of their visitation from God. And I, I think I think Palm Sunday is is the time when we have to stop and consider our own lives, and whether or not we recognize in this the visitation of God to us in Christ, the world's true Lord, that he comes to us gentle and riding on a donkey, weeping over the violence of the world and the bloodlust of the nations, even the the faithlessness of the people of God. And you know, we're, we're citizens, we're subjects to this king and citizens of his kingdom. And he just extends it to that citizenship, offered to all, regardless of your race, creed, religion, status, all that stuff. And he says, this, this kingdom, it's different. It doesn't come by might and power, but by the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, which is the spirit of peace. And I think this, this picture confronts us asks asks us to, to consider how do we, in a sense, how do we enter our own lives? Riding a war horse or a peace donkey? How do we, you could say, how do we enter into our relationships with family, with our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, our enemies? Do we power up, try to enforce our We'll try to get others to back down. And this picture really, it asks, it asks us to consider if we're, if we're, first of all, brave enough to head into the city at all in the first place, to contend against evil and injustice in the world. Or do we just stay out of it, leave it to somebody else, you know, which is a very common response to say, look, this is such a mess, I'm just going to check out. Or do we engage and push back against the the rulers of this present darkness, right? And if we do, how? How do we do it? How do we push back? How do we confront evil and injustice? With domination? With power? And, And what Palm Sunday teaches is that when we enter into the struggle, the fray of the world? I mean, the real world, not just religion, but everything that's happening, politics, economics, justice, all of the systems of the world. How, how do we enter and, and contend for goodness and light and the right and what is true and still, you know, like keep our tender hearts? It's really hard to do. How do we move against the brokenness, but not trying to destroy our enemies, but to win them for the kingdom, you know? It's really hard to do. And what the picture tells us is that it actually really, really matters, right? That we're meant to enter our world the way Jesus entered Jerusalem, to follow Christ's lead. And so what we see here riding on the donkey, you know, weeping and longing for peace is is our Lord, our God, right? The world doesn't see that. The world sees a wimp, you know, a pushover or a fool, at least a waste of time. We see the most powerful person who's ever lived triumphing, you know, in... Tri- the triumph of love over hate and of, of peace over war. A triumph of grace for every human being. That's what we see. I mean, Christ just walked through the world. Every life that he touched um, just was greeted with this unconditional love. And it, it, the world has literally never been the same. I mean, it is powerful. It's one of the most powerful acts ever performed, especially in the political theater. And the world sees it and says, like, this is kind of, like, sentimental foolishness. It's religious superstition. It's not realistic. We live in the real world. Right? We'll, we'll trust in our might and our power to ensure our kingdoms. We say, "Now this is the king, man. This is how the kingdom comes. There is no other way. It's not by might or power, but by my spirit, the spirit of this one who rides a donkey into Jerusalem to confront the powers. And so as we move into to Holy Week, um, this, this triumph of Jesus, it, it asks us to ponder before we get to the celebration of res- resurrection, to ponder the kind of Lord we're looking for and to not dictate the terms to let this, this one dictate the terms. And, and to ask ourselves do we have co- the courage and faith um, to follow this one who comes in peace? Let's pray. Oh God, we confess on this Palm Sunday. Um, Just how difficult it is for us to choose to contend for the right and the good and the true and to try to do so by the means of the kingdom, this one that we celebrate today who came riding into Jerusalem in peace, weeping over the brokenness. And pray for us, just as a congregation, as we head through this week, this holy week, headed toward Easter, that will um, not skip past the weeping part and just come to the resurrection and triumph, but they'll rem- we'll remember the, the brokenheartedness of our Savior. That we'll remember how quickly they turned on him and that we'll remember his weeping and means of grace and that we'll be courageous to move through holy week in this way we thank you for this story and we pray in christ's name amen I invite you to stand please and we're going to receive communion we do this because on the night when Christ was betrayed he took a loaf of bread and a cup and he passed the same loaf and the cup around to all his followers and they, they all shared in the same um, same meal. And he said, here's what I want you to do whenever you gather from here on out eat a chunk of bread and drink from the same cup and he said, the bread is like my body the cup is like my blood which, which meant life to them and receive it into your bodies and just be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And he said, whenever you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion. And it's also why we just don't put any preconditions on communion. Everybody's welcome to join us at the table. Um, And um, the the way that we do it, you'll be released row by row and they'll just offer you a, a plate of bread and a cup and you just take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. Um, But first, let's pray. Let's pray a blessing on on the table. Oh, God, we do ask your blessing on this bread and on this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out and send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Will you come?